All right, Bavanovich, get down on your stomach and lie still. Ten seconds, but she didn't hear or she wanted to get just a little more distance, and she kept running, careless, leaping strides. And at the high point of one leap, there was a flash and a rumble, and something big hit her below the neck, and her headless body spun off end over end through space, trailing a red-black spiral of flash-frozen blood that settled gracefully to the ground, a path of crystal powder that nobody disturbed while we gathered rocks to cover the juiceless thing at the end of it. This also reminds me, um, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but I had a flashback to Christopher Walken's uh, Celebrity Psychic Hotline, which was a skit, a Saturday Night Live skit, which is, it's mostly just like Christopher Walken sort of looking plaintively at the camera and being sort of, sort of like, why aren't you calling? Why aren't you calling? We will come to your house. I will come to your house right now and give you a psychic reading. All right, no calls. I'm going to bring another guest. It's Crispin Glover. <laughs> <laughs> like all the guests, I think one of the guests is, is Christopher Penn too. So like just like, a, I mean, I, I I don't know if Crispin Glover is actually creepy, but he he definitely has a creepy affect. Uh, and um, yeah, so you have these three pretty creepy Hollywood oh God, actors standing around. Like, we will come to your house and give you a reading. Which would be terrible. Call the Christopher Walken psychic hotline right now. We will come to your house, give you a psychic reading. The phones are silent. Why? Why aren't you call you know, and and then they would do like a short interview segment. Such a a classic walk. Crispin Glover. Why did you start acting? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, but I don't know. I, I could be misrepresenting it. I this is all. <laughs> this, is... this is all. The Saturday Night Live for a while had a guy who was really good at walking. Oh, so that was was that that was not walking. That was. It was not oh, real walking. Wow. It was not. It was. It was. That would have been very funny. This, yeah, it was. It was their fake walking. But it, which is, I, I understand your confusion because walking was always going on to Saturday Night Live and like. You know, obviously the cow, the cowbell. Just, yeah, he would very often skit. do the parody of himself. Um, right. He would. Yeah, he would play sort of over the top Christopher Walken type characters. But you're, you're. He's also a very good dancer. Yes, I, I don't know I if have, you ever seen. Yeah, I have heard that. Like I've seen, I think, clips of him doing the tango, and it's it's wonderful. Yeah, very very. I mean, he was in that. Fat Boy Slim video where he did quite a bit of dancing, but I think he they often try to work dancing into his films too. So if you it, something like eighty percent of Christopher Walken films, you'll see him dancing just a little bit. That's a good. Yeah, that'd be a good Christopher Walken bingo. Yeah, dancing, murdering somebody, <laughs> um, it, telling a rambling story that doesn't seem necessarily that important, and then punctuates with like a. Maybe an interrogative, but also maybe a, a, a like a command that ascends. They, yeah, the, yeah. No, his his command. Why? You, know, you take your hands off me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. His he and then his questions are not inflected like a question. Why aren't you calling my hotline? Yes, I could be at your house right now. Yep. Well, shall we get down to it?
Yeah. Uh, so today on Upper Middle Brow, we're talking about Joe Haldeman's 1974 sci-fi novel, The Forever War, which I just looked this up, won the Hugo and Nebula Awards. And then another, that, the that Locus year. Award, which I wasn't familiar with. Um, I'm sure if mm. I saw it, but I, I, I was also doing a little research and was like, whoa, this did quite well. And I can see why. Awesome. Well, do you want to start our recap? Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, we start, uh, we're, we're thrown right into it. Um, there, re- there really is a nice sense of dislocation in this novel. <laughs> eight, eight ways to kill yeah, a man yeah. uh, silently or something like that. Yeah, it's like the very first thing. Yeah, and you're like, what's going on? And then we, we, we're yeah. in some kind of training scenario. Um, right. Very uncomfortable conditions that we know pretty quickly are like, these are the best conditions you're going to have in training soldiers. Um, so setting yep. up the conceit that, you know, whatever we think it's is gonna get right, worse. bad now is going to get way worse. Um, but yeah, it's a bunch of army trainees uh, who are working <clears> in very cold weather, who are trying to basically set up a defensive position and learn how to do that. Um, and we move pretty quickly from there to training in space. Um, we know that our hero, William Mandela, uh, at this point, he is an enlisted man. He's not an officer. Um, Private Mandela, and um, is now on the sun side of a moon, Karen, um, and learning how to operate a fighting suit and learning how to not die while in training. Um, A lot, yeah, I think 11 members of his battalion, company, um, do die. Company, I think. Company, Yeah. yeah, do die during the training. Um, and then they are moved to the other side of the moon, uh, where it's totally dark all the time. And, um, they are to build a base and then defend it from attack from their commanders. Uh, they do that. We, there, there are casualties just in the training scenes. Um, we know that they are training to fight in a war against, an unknown or undescribed alien race called the Torrens. Um, there are a few training casualties and then their bosses do their, their commanders do attack the base that they erect, uh, killing, I think another three or four, uh, cadets basically. Um, but that is deemed to be enough for them to graduate and, get deployed to fight the Torrens somewhere deep in space. Um, We also know that in the army, sort of sexual um, partnering is is a thing that happens a lot and um, is kind of de rigueur or expected expected and partners change hands a lot. yeah, there's even a there's even a a, a schedule. Yeah, yeah. If you're in... uh, provided by the at least in basic training, totally. Um, where you have a sleeping partner, and it is bad either bad etiquette or perhaps even at one point perhaps alludes to being illegal mm-hmm. to refuse sex. Uh, so everybody's sleeping with everybody else, although in a very heterosexual way. Yeah, uh, which some, becomes important. I've got some points about that yep. later. <laughs> yep. Um, so one, one a little bit of exposition that we learn is that there's some kind of like wormhole, 
uh, instantaneous space travel. I forget what they collapse stars, uh, yeah. stars that are collapsing, and you can navigate into them and then come out. I don't know, uh, hundreds of light years away, um, a long way away, farther than you could travel, you know, at, at relativistic speeds in a lifetime, I think, or, or quite a bit. Um, and so part of the reason we don't know much about the Torons is they're really far away and their home, we don't even know where their home planet is. They were encountered in the, uh, Taurus, um, constellation, uh, near Aldebaran, um, and uh, one one suspects that uh, George Lucas read this book <laughs> and uh, was inspired in his naming. In the same way that the Emperor Palpatine was inspired by Charles Palantine uh, from um, uh, Taxi Driver. Yeah, he, he's the, like, uh, the politician. I'll just subtract a consonant from this word and put it in this other word. Perfect. He, he does a lot of that. Uh, Sepulda, Sepulba is a character from one of the prequels. And every time I drive through L.A., I see Sepulveda Boulevard. And I'm like, I'm sure George Lucas also has seen Sepulveda Boulevard <laughs> many a time. Um, it, it, the, uh, so, so there is a, a chase scene. Um, they're, they're basically en route to a planet that the Torrens have settled. But along the way, they're pursued by a Torren ship. One of the things we learn about the Torrens we come to learn is that they seem to be very skilled at kind of space ship to ship combat, which happens at tremendous distances. You know, the, the ship is following them at, you know, I don't know, thousands of kilometers behind them and they're accelerating at tremendous speeds and they're launching missiles. Um, the ship more or less eludes this attack. Um, it sets up some, um, some stuff that becomes relevant a little bit later, but then they land on this planet I forget the name of the planet, um, but it's where the Torrens have settled, and this is going to be the first time that humans attack uh, Torrens on a planet. And they, um, after kind of getting settled, they march several kilometers. I want to say it's a two- or three-day march. And along the way, they encounter these teddy bear-like local inhabitants, believed to be unintelligent. They're grass eaters, although they do have ESP. And at one point, they kill one of the soldiers with their ESP. Um, but um, they are also uh, murdered uh, by the soldiers because uh, the sergeant is a has a kind of like let's not take any chances. If we see if anything's alive, this might be a uh, we're going to kill it. Yeah. This could be a torrent. We better kill it. Uh, um, then they assault the base, um, and it is a horrific um, scene. The torrents apparently have no concept of hand to hand soldier combat um and they are these weird sort of skinny looking creatures they don't wear clothing instead they have these bubbles that provide them an atmosphere in which they are naked um and but the bubbles are very easy to pop and basically once the bubble is popped they're dead um they can't survive in the atmosphere and Many of them are killed. They try to capture one. They succeed at that, but then that one's bubble gets popped, so that one dies, and they, uh, the sergeant sets about dissecting it in a very gruesome manner. And there's a kind of horrific moment where all of them just kind of panic, uh, the Torrens, and run to what turns out to be a launch facility. Most of them are killed. One of them escapes um, and heads back to the main planet, which is going to set up future conflict and perhaps 
you know, it's eluded. Mandela thinks maybe next time they'll know more about combat um, or, you know, person-to-person combat as opposed to space combat. Um, so that takes us to the second space pursuit. Do you want to take it from there? Yeah. Um, so along the way, we begin to learn, first of all, about, like, Joe Haldeman's kind of handle on the relativism of space travel. Um, like he's really got like he's got a, a good grip around it the same way that Andy Weir talks about important yeah, science. Yeah. Um, and of yeah. course, because these soldiers are traveling at such high speeds and over such great distances that their subjective time, uh, the time that they experience is different than kind of objective time. Um, right. And I think in this... Well, it's not objective time. It, you could say Earth, Earth time, time or you could say Torin time. Right. Yeah, there is no... There is, there there is, is no, no objective, objective time. time. <laughs> Everybody see Einstein. Um, right. And um, so for in one of the calculations here, so it's been about eight months for these soldiers since that encounter on the planet Aleph, their, their kind of first contact with the Torrens. During their experience of eight months, other areas, other fixed areas of the universe relative to them have experienced about 10 years. Um, And so the Torrens have had time to kind of catch up. Uh, And they, again, pursue these... uh, it's the army, um, so I guess it's not really UNEF. UNEF, Re- yeah. It's they, a U- they keep referring United Nations expeditionary, expeditionary force. force or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, almost like UNICEF, which is very ironic. <laughs> yeah, right. They are they are not <laughs> UNICEF. You would not want these guys to show up uh, when you're you know starving somewhere in the midst of a famine, yeah. um, uh, unless they're fighting the warlords responsible for the famine. Yeah, that's who. Yeah, th- that would be a great choice. Then you would yeah, want exactly. Them. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the Torrens have gotten quite a bit better um, at propelling things through space. And uh, a, a missile is launched. Uh, at first, it's defeated, um, and then there's sort of a, another space battle. Uh, and again, the way these th- the, his description of how these things work, you have to launch missiles days ahead of time and it's all kind of handled by the computer but all of that kind of description really puts you in this world of like this concept of time dilation um that i think is really interesting and a really important part of the novel um they are able to ward off the missiles and destroy the enemy vessel but something gets through um and there's a good description of why this usually doesn't happen but it destroys about a third of the ship um, and kills several platoons of um, UNF soldiers um, and very badly injures uh, our main character's long-term partner, uh, Mary Gay Potter. and um, Kind of like favorite lover. Favorite lover, yeah, exactly. Um, Joe Haldeman's wife is... Uh, named Gay, <laughs> as, as we Gay heard. Potter. In, in, oh, is her last fact. name? Is her maiden name Potter? Oh, I didn't even get that far. Yes. That's awesome. How <laughs> yes. wonderful! Way to go, Joe Haldeman. Yeah. Good, good thing she doesn't die in that in the attack. Although we don't know what happens in the second half of the we book. We don't, not yet. But um, 
Yeah, uh, she is quite badly wounded. Um, the captain decides to break off the attack on Yad 4, I think is the name of the planet to which they're headed, um, to relay this information about this possible new weapon to Earth. Uh, and we go back to Earth where our main characters, even though they have probably in their own time not they they have served for about two years and they're going to be released or allowed uh, given the option of uh going back to civilian life 27 years have passed on earth and i will kick it back to you to wrap up our recap so 27 years have passed and things are weird uh from mandela and his cohorts perspective um and weird in many ways weird politically weird economically weird socially uh economically things are kind of worse um maybe because of the war and we're in kind of a socialist dystopia kind of an interesting break from the capitalist dystopias that we've been reading about um, so kind of like there literally are death panels, uh, in the way that say Obamacare did not have death panels. Uh, uh, there are death panels in, I believe just like it's an AI in Zurich or something like that, that tells people, uh, whether or not you're going to get healthcare or not. Uh, there's hyperinflation, there's rampant unemployment. Almost everybody is on some version of the dole. Um, it kind of reminds me of the Soviet Union in that because the government is responsible for everything and because they're not doing a very good job of that, there are all there's all sorts of kind of functional black markets, yeah. including a black, weird black market for jobs. Um, and probably uh, there's rampant crime um, and such that most people, most people can afford it, even if they're on the dole, go around with a bodyguard or, you know, just purchase guns and carry them around. In fact, Mandela kills somebody um, with his gun. A gang of people are raping a woman and he uh, kills one of them with a, a, a kind of a hand a pistol shotgun. Um, and then one of the, the things that is hardest for Mandela to wrap his brain around is that um, homosexuality, um, and, and not, not necessarily queerness more broadly, but homosexuality, uh, men pairing with men, women pairing with women, has become not only more socially accepted, but sort of encouraged by the government as a population control measure. Um, it also seems like men um, are also more comfortable presenting their feminine aspects in public. There's less of a stigma against that. And Mandela is, you know, he fancies himself somebody who is tolerant, uh, but he's clearly disconcerted, especially when it turns out that his mother has a woman lover um and you know the mother is quite a bit older than she was before she's now about 80 and so a lot of the sort of last little section of the book is also kind of concerning her relationship uh with him it's also probably hard for her to see this you know 22 year old boy come off you know 27 years go by and then he comes back at 29 and she's had to move on with her life you know her husband his father has died um there's also a kind of, I was giving you sort of the urban version. There's also a kind of rural uh, sci-fi um, agrarian dystopia thing going on too, uh, where if you don't sort of like what's going on in the cities, 
you're welcome to go to the country and raise food. Um, and but basically, you know, times are tough. There's not a lot of fuel. Um, they have atomic powered plows and things like that, but it's hard work. Mm-hmm. And so Mandela goes to Potter's home in Nebraska, I think, and kind of hangs out uh, with his parents, uh, her parents, and helps out there for a little bit. And some bad stuff happens. They're kind of attacked by some local toughs. Um, and I would say eventually Mandela and Potter are like, this sucks. We've been offered the chance to re-enlist and guaranteed whatever assignment we want, including training. Let's go do that. I call this section of the book eliminating the parents or, I mean, any author, really. I mean, uh, any, any time that you want your main characters to be free of attachments to head off to magic school or the forest or deep space, you got to get rid of classic those YA. Yeah, they they have to be isolated. And I mean, the other thing too is eliminating all other options. You know that that there's they don't really have a lot of good options. I mean, they could kind of subsist on the dole, but if they rejoin the military, they have jobs, they make money. Yeah. Uh, they have much more autonomy, they think. Um, but then, in a bit of dramatic irony, uh, when they show up uh, on the training um, base in the moon, they are immediately reassigned to a combat uh, deployment, um, which is a dirty trick uh, played by the military. Technically, they the, the letter of the promise that was made to them, uh, their choice of assignments, was fulfilled, but within something like 30 seconds of arriving at their chosen assignment, they're given the assignment that the military planned for them all along, which is to send them back into deep space to go fight some more Torrens. And that is the end of our section. Um, My first question is for you. Um, This is, I mean, I get, you know, of course it's for you. Um, But my question Mm -hmm. of the, my question for you first. (laughs) Got it. Um, this is the second time you've read this book. Um, I think you've told me that the last time was probably about 20 years ago and that you had just begun to kind of forget what happened from that previous read. Um, yeah. My question is, as you were reading this, did parts come back to you? Um, and then the follow-up there is, as they came back to you, how was your experience different this time? Good question. Um, you know, I don't, I don't remember as much as I thought I would. Um, strangely, like I remember some of the training scenes. I get, you know, I probably read it when I was about twenty or so. I do remember. I mean, again, sort of twenty-year-old brain. All the soldiers having sex with one another stuck in my brain. I, I remember the the normalization of the homosexuality, and that, interestingly. I was reading that around the time that is supposed to be the present for Mandela at the, you know, in the 90s uh, at the beginning of the book. And I remember, yeah, being like, wow, that would be quite a bit different. And then reading that this time being like, that's pretty prescient, <laughs> you know, um, that, that, that I mean, he doesn't get it entirely right, but in roughly the same amount of time the social acceptance of queerness in our world has changed about, not quite in the same way, but about to the same degree as it changes in this book, which is actually pretty stunningly uh, prescient. So I remember that. I don't think, I, I think also, I don't really remember the combat scenes 
as much. And I think maybe when I was younger, I read it sort of more as a kind of fascinating, hard sci-fi kind of conquest war story. And reading it this time, I just, they they are so horrific mm-hmm. um, and so tragic. And it's not to say that I wasn't aware of that when I was reading it the first time, but maybe as a younger reader, you get a little bit more caught up in the adventure story of it. And maybe it seems kind of fun. And, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, but I think, you know, there is something about war that can seem fun and that that is kind of an immature reaction to it. And I was less mature. Um, so I don't remember, I don't remember feeling quite as sickened um, by the battle scenes as uh, I did in, in this reading and um, didn't necessarily, you know, I had a greater sense of sadness as I was reading it this time. Whereas I think the first time I read it, I was more like, oh, this is fascinating, sort of imagining how a war like this would be conducted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I, this is my first time of reading it. Mm. And so I don't have that younger read you know, to compare to. I'm really enjoying this book. I have some reservations that we'll get to a little later. They're pretty nitpicky. <laughs> um, and... You know, I knew yeah. that this is I knew that this is a very thinly veiled allegory about the Vietnam War. Um, right. Just going into it, you you kind of pick that up. Um, the 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 foreword is quite good and kind of talks about that too. But um, yeah, it, this this uh, this is a very emotionally affecting novel. Uh, yeah. And the scenes of mostly in scenes of people being wounded, either people or aliens. And, um, yeah, yeah, it, and, and described (laughs) completely gruesomely and, and, um, yeah, you know, lots of guts and blood and, and foam Mm -hmm. and slippery intestines and things like that. And it's happening to the people and it's happening to the Torrens, the humans, I should say, we don't know if the Torrens are people or not. I think they probably are people. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it is. There's something kind of Hemingway-like about yeah. um, the description of war. You know, um, I, is, is, it, is it For Whom the Bell Tolls or uh, The Ambulance Driver? Is that yes. a book or is that? Yeah, um, which I've read. I read a long time ago, but it re- kind of reminds me of, of those descriptions of the war, which are, you know, completely... They're brutal in there. The 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 the, the uh, reader is not allowed to avert their gaze, um, and that's very very uncomfortable. Uh, you know, it's a little bit. I'm a, I have some nitpicks too, and one of the things is I sometimes feel like he kind of is torn between whether to do emotional narration or just let those moments speak for themselves. Yeah. I think I prefer when the moments speak for themselves. There are there are these bits of narration where he was like at that. At that moment, I would I didn't want to be a soldier. You know, I was just disgusted by what we had just done. It was murder, plain and simple. You know, and there are a few moments like that where I'm like, yeah, I know. You, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like, yes, like you described yeah. it, and I got yeah. it. I got it because you described it incredibly vividly. Um, there's a couple. Actually, you know what? I have a quick reading yeah, yeah, that, if if you don't mind me, um, this is a a moment where I kind of thought the Hemingway like writing worked really well um, where he's not necessarily giving you that much 
Um, so this is one of the first of two training accidents that are described very vividly. Actually, I should say the second ac the second training accident ends up with a happy resolution. Uh, Mandela kind of saves the day, but this is the first one where the woman um, is having a hard time getting out of the crater where oh, she plants boy. a bomb, yeah. and then she ends up getting decapitated by the ex explosion. Um, Okay, so, and she basically, she is cutting it too close. She's trying to run away, and she's probably gotten far enough away, but she's panicked. And so Sergeant Cortez is trying to get her to lie down and where she'll likely be shielded from the blast, but she's in too much of a panic and ignores him. And so this is right before she dies. It looked as though she was going pretty fast, but she had only covered about 30 meters when, when Cortez said, All right, Bavanovich. Get down on your stomach and lie still. Ten seconds, but she didn't hear, or she wanted to get just a little more distance, and she kept running, careless, leaping strides. And at the high point of one leap, there was a flash and a rumble, and something big hit her below the neck, and her headless body spun off end over end through space, trailing a red-black spiral of flash-frozen blood that settled gracefully to the ground a path of crystal powder that nobody disturbed while we gathered rocks to cover the juiceless thing at the end of it. That night, Cortez didn't lecture us, didn't even show up for night shop. We were all very polite to each other, and nobody was afraid to talk about it. I sacked with Rogers. Everybody sacked with a good friend, but all she wanted to do was cry, and she cried so long and so hard that she got me doing it too. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, I, I was listening to that section. Um, I was driving somewhere and I think I, I like was like leaving a parking lot and just kind of pulled over to listen to that because the way that that passage moves from very bland description to incredibly vivid description and a really interesting sentence structure that ends with that, mm. the juiceless thing at the end of it. Um that whole section is replete with descriptive language language. And then we shift back into that very flattened emotional narration, but very effective where it's pretty much stripped of descriptive language now. And it just, it was like watching a really, it was like watching a pro do something. Not only was, is that section beautiful and I will never forget that like image of frozen blood trails settling onto this kind of lunar yeah. surface. It it really, really, really works. It is such a great section of writing. And yeah, you're right. It does get very Hemingway-esque at the end. Um, and you, you feel it despite the, uh, despite the lack of description during that emotional place. No, he's describing very dispassionately how this group of soldiers is dealing with witnessing this thing. Mm -hmm. You don't need you don't need Mandela to be like, we were all sick to our stomachs and felt terrible. You know, if only Bavanovich had laid down the way Cortez said, if only, you know, that, we don't, you don't need that. Yeah like that you create all of that and and i will say as a nitpick i i i'm anticipating one of your nitpicks um but i i, I wish he was in this mode more yeah. um and i i find that he's telling us what mandela how mandela feels more often than 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 my taste um but man this is this is and this is i would also say that often the writing is not that beautifully descriptive but this is an 
this is a mo- that's a moment and then there's another one later that I might mention but but my question I want to ask you this question it, it seems like both of us are fascinated by the politics of this book yeah. um do you think this is an anti-war novel that's a good question um because I think you are cued to think of it as an anti-war novel um Oof, boy, <laughs> that's a great, <laughs> you, you may have stumped me here. Um, I was thinking about it as an anti-war novel. It reads like an anti-war novel, but really I'm trying to come up with a better answer for that. It feels more anti-military um, and it also... Or maybe even anti-military leadership. Y- you yeah. Know, it's not necessarily anti-soldier. Right, exactly. It's a, When I say military, um, there's all those sections where he talks about the 10 months to get back from the second space battle to, to Stargate. Um, yeah. And there's a sentence where it's like, and it was all army all the time. And you could really hear yeah. the like disdain for not only military leadership. The section back on Earth tells us that the real enemy is the bureaucratic machine of war. Um, yeah. And the thing that it's standing in for here is, is, is I mean, I would, I, you know, again, I come at a lot of things with a sort of Marxist structure. Um, you cannot read the section back on earth with its indictment of basically capitalist markets to fuel a war somewhere else. Um, I think it is more about the structures and changes that come out of war and the absurdities that are required to run a war on a massive scale. There's nothing wrong with the yeah. platoon, but pretty much everything above the company level is to be deeply mistrusted. Yeah. And even, you know, Sergeant Cortez is a wonderful character because he is at times avuncular and deeply sympathetic, but then he also is sort of jingoistic in a, in a way that, you know, there's a moment where Mandela sort of thinks to himself, what if we had just sat down and tried to talk to the Torrens, you know, and Cortez would not have any of that, you know, even one senses that's not his orders, but even if Cortez likes it that way, he is not interested in talking to the Torrens, he's interested in destroying the Torrens. And so, yeah, I do think it's anti-bureaucracy. I think it's anti-jingoism. I think, though, that, you know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily. Yeah, it's not anti-soldier to me. What it feels like is sort of journalistic and journalistic the in the same way that Hemingway. I, I think Hemingway must be an influence on, oh, yeah. on Joe Haldeman. And I think even he has a novel called like, The Hemingway Deception or something like that. Like he looks like I, Hemingway. I, I, he does right and and he was a soldier Hemingway I can't remember Hemingway was an ambulance driver and a war correspondent Um, and so they've both seen war face to face and I think that there's a tremendous sympathy towards the soldier 
there's a sort of complexity around the non-commissioned officers and some of the officers, although a lot of them are kind of meatheads, but, but the, there is good leadership. And then there's an observation about what war does to people and how war sits into, in a broader society. And then, of course, it's also a book about time mm-hmm. and this notion of future shock. And it, it's really funny, you know, that the last third of the section we read, um, you know, you could create another device that allows characters to experience future shock. I mean, in, in uh, Dan Simmons' Hyperion, there are characters, it's called Time Debt, and there are characters who travel, you know, sort of at relativistic speeds so much that they lose track of their, uh, you know, their home mm-hmm. planet's culture. That is its own wonderful... You could write a whole novel about that without having it set in a war scenario. But then I have to feel like Joe Haldeman was a, a, a soldier. Uh, apparently, he had a hard time returning back to the United States after his tour of duty in Vietnam. And I think... I suspect that there's not one entity that he felt was responsible mm-hmm. for that. You know, that it might have been might have been the public at large. It might have been the lack of a sense of welcome. It might have been the lack of sort of understanding of trauma or PTSD. It might have been the military. It also might have been the economy of the 1970s. Although this is 1974, so it's really before um, things got really bad in terms of the economy, mm-hmm. I think. So... So, um, yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think you did a good job with that curveball <laughs> question. I, I think I agree with, with, I totally agree with your analysis. Yeah, he's, he's the, the, real, the real enemy towards the, the last third of what we read is the cultural drift of Earth. And that's yeah. where my, my biggest worries about this book come from, is that mm. the, the enemy is this kind of pastiche of capitalist, socialist, and queer ideas um, mm. that it, he doesn't come right out and say that things are bad, but his tone of voice is telling, um, mm. you know, like he talks about the 23 year old officer who is wearing powder and lipstick because that's the style now. Um, and, and, Man- and Mandela says something like, I'd keep my own face, you know, which is a very, which is a very reductive and kind of insulting thing to say, um, because we're meant we are I think we're really meant to hear some critique of this changed culture. Um, yeah, and that, that's one of my that's one of my problems with it. And the other one is that the the inciting event for mandela to kind of leave this society one of the inciting events is discovering that his his mom is in a homosexual relationship and there's just enough of that like you said he's so prescient about the change in the culture and but i can still hear um some and of course, I mean, it's, it's the seventies. I can, I can also be empathetic and compassionate towards a writer's time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of one of my, like, uh, that's one of those sci-fi speculative things where he got one thing right, but maybe got it right for the wrong reasons. Well, yeah, you know, you might be right the tone that you're picking up on, but I'm not sure. Um, I think it's possible 
that that tone is Mandela's and not necessarily the author's. Mm. And, and I think, and I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily know, I mean, you know, we've talked about the dangers of trying to adduce the author's politics. Um, I do think the book is anti-bureaucracy, and I think the world is increasingly dystopian. But I also think, I think there's an in, there's a smart thought experiment, and I know you know the 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 the, the uh, front matter or back matter of the book tells us that a thousand years are going to go by, and I do remember some of the things that happen in the second half, and. To me, I think one of the things that Haldeman is doing is saying there are going to be uh, attitudes that seem perfectly normal to us now and things that feel wrong to us now that are going to seem perfectly normal in the future. Mm -hmm. And he picks one, and it's homosexuality. And if you think about it, it's two or three years after Stonewall, um, I think. I think Stonewall is 69 or 70 or something like that. so there is a gay rights movement. There's the sexual revolution. And he kind of, he takes a few of these things. He takes the sort of growing acceptance of marijuana. He takes the sexual revolution. And he takes what's just beginning is a growing mainstream acceptance of queerness and homosexuality. And he projects all three of them <laughs> forward. And he gets, and he gets that right. And I think it would make sense that a character like Mandela would be having a hard time with that. Um, I think if you took me, a kind of well-educated, bright kid who, as a teenager, who was raised in a society that was rather homophobic, and as a teenager, I would have told you that I supported gay rights. However, it took some exposure to actual gay people, you know, in my teens and 20s, uh, before I became comfortable um, around gay people and I'm, I'm not you know i'm not proud to admit that but i think that's what happens yeah. when you're raised in, in a homophobic culture and i can remember that process and if you had taken me at age 18 and put me now and you know having people who are using uh, uh, there's even a, a they them pronoun moment he doesn't quite get them I, right but, but that like it was amazing yeah. i was like oh my that, gosh that, she's yeah. anticipated like this, yeah, it, and, and those things I just, I so admire that ability. And you're right, you're doing a really good job of complicating my reading, which I, I appreciate. Well, and, uh, you know, to complete the thought, you probably know where I'm going, but, you know, our friend Justin and I ended up at the Bethel, Vermont queer dance party randomly a few uh, months ago. And, it was wonderful. Um, you know, we went in and we were two very kind of frumpy straight guys. And everybody there seemed to be presenting in with some kind of queerness, whether it's just like I am a man who likes to dress a little bit like a woman and I'm here with my girlfriend who likes to dress a little bit like a man, whether people are non-binary. And it was so welcoming. And people were displaying different aspects of their gender identity and sexual identity in a way, and Justin and I were both really impressed. And these were a lot of teenagers or people in their 20s, but some pe- middle-aged people too, and some elders as well. And But it, I think if you had taken the 18-year-old me and put me in that party without the last 25 years or so, for me to become used to and comfortable with 
um, queerness in with uh, um, trans people, I think it would have been, I mean, I would have wanted to feel comfortable. I wouldn't have, I would have been like, I, this is important. I understand that. <laughs> I think I would have just been viscerally uncomfortable. And I think Mandela is dealing with some of that too. Now, whether or not the author also intends a little bit of a critique, I don't know. But I, I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily see it in his tone. I see it again as sort of journalistic, mm-hmm. like this is what would happen. Norms will have changed. And someone who's stuck 20 years ago, they're going to have a hard time yeah. with those norms. We had a question for you about hotspots. Like mm. thinking back over the first half of this book that we just finished, um, what are the moments where the, the hotspots, like where the, the, the hot parts of the book where your attention really focused and you were pretty darn well immersed and that second brain, that kind of observing intelligent brain that we've talked about is kind of off somewhere else because mm. you're so into the book at that moment. The big one for me is the campaign on the planet to fight the Torrens. Like basically from the moment they land and encounter the teddy bears to the attack on the base. Just completely in it. It's bizarre. It's sad. It's tragic. It's vividly described. It's gruesome. It's it's weirdly funny at times, like with the Robert Burns, uh, Scott's Hayway poem in the middle of it. Um, Scott's way, hey, Wallace, where that, you know, um, all of that in a way that I think probably is what war feels like, um, you know, and that part just, you know, vivid. Um, I don't know. He's not always great at describing landscape. So I was having a little bit of a hard time picturing kind of where we were relative to everything, but the descriptions of the aliens and the bubbles and their bodies and the teddy bears, all of that stuff, that was probably the number one hot spot. Um, I think both of the kind of, uh, the the training accident that I read you mm-hmm. and the training accident, or I don't, yeah, I think it was a training accident where Mandela comes up with this kind of ingenious idea of building a little like house, uh, chamber yeah. house in order to get a guy out of his malfunctioning suit. Like both of those were hot spots. Both of them combining his gifts of of drama, um, emotional. Uh, pathos and hard sci-fi and description sort of Andy Weir like sense of like yeah I know exactly what's going on even though you're describing physics to me Um, and then I think also just the entire ending up in the future like that whole section from when he you know his mom shows up until they leave like just that part was so bizarre and and I thought it narrated this concept of future shock brilliantly um and and you know and i I, you know trying to untangle the politics is it marxist i don't know it is it's kind of like a socialist dystopia but there is it it, to me it's almost more like the united states became more like the soviet union in a way and and so has the world like more authoritative more bureaucratic um but then also with this bizarrely kind of capitalist overlay on it too so those were my three what what about you yeah i mean i really found myself getting immersed when they were in the training on Karen and then mm-hmm. the uh, the first the first battle 
the section where Mary Gay was wounded in the second battle yeah. and his attempt to keep her alive. And that was very good too. Yeah, and and then but I found my I, I read through the section where back on Earth with with like interest and being like okay. I know this has to be here because we need to get them back off this planet. So this has to be, this has to be ugly and this has to yep. feel like returning home uh, from something that you thought you never wanted to see again, finding home so bad that you do return to that thing. Um, yeah. Those are the hot spots for me. And so we're pretty, we're pretty close in alignment but the thing yeah. that it brought up for me was realizing, oh, this is what happens when this is not actually a novel. This is a journal. Mm. This is interesting. It, it unfolds all forward. There's yeah. nary a flashback. Um, there's no real change in structure, which hmm. if you're going to write a novel that involves relativity that may be the only structure that works because there's already like a confusing time yeah. thing. And my question is about like, I, I think this book's fault, the, this book's faults are revealed out of structural faults. I think hmm. that this is that old thing where a, a novel that simply unfolds that, that is structured by chronology is, not always the best structure sort of this happened hmm. then this happened then this happened he is such a great writer of gripping and dramatic scenes that it kind of doesn't matter but i found myself beginning to rec to see the structures for what they were and i was like as soon as we were back on earth i was like well earth has to be really shitty because we know that this we know this plot heads back out into space um and I still enjoyed that section a lot, but I'm finding, I think this structure is also kind of a cautionary tale um, because there are parts where my attention does begin to drift in between his wonderful description and dramatic scene telling. You know what? I don't know that I would have noticed that without you bringing it up. Um, I guess that my feeling is is that structure is just baked into the ideation of the book. Kind of like one of my favorite movies, Boyhood. You know, it, it would be weird to have a flashback in Boyhood, right? Um, it, it, because, and it, actually Richard Linklater said when he came up with the idea of Boyhood, his idea was that time would replace plot. And I think the for, in the Forever War, time is also replacing plot, yeah. too. So I think I'm all right with it because that's the book. It's like that's the concept. And, and you know, I do, I do think, to me, the weaknesses are sort of more the kind of inconsistency between dramatic interiority and the sort of more Hemingway-like, you know, uh, reporterly, this is what happened. This is what we did about it. 
you can you can figure out how we fucking felt you know <laughs> like um which is which is you know i mean we had a hemingway reading last time too and it, it was interesting that that's on my brain that's hard I, both things are hard to do like good interiority dramatic narration when it's done well is very hard to do and then sucking out and but still giving enough information about to, to hint at what the characters might be feeling to allow for that sort of pleasurable engagement on the part of the reader figuring it out um that's also hard to do and i hold him in sort of in my mind bounces a little bit uncomfortably between those but again that's a nitpick yeah. you know he's pretty good um but and there's moments of, of brilliance but that would be the one weakness i see i guess i don't mind the thing that you're bringing up just because like to me, that's the idea that the book is... Mm -hmm. To me, the idea of somebody subjectively experiencing what will probably end up being 20 or 30 or 40 years while his home world experiences what will be hundreds, if not over a thousand years, that's the idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I guess I defy you to come up with a plot that expresses that idea that is anything other than chronological. Yeah, I mean, he even says at one point, he gets asked, like, what what is the war like? And I think, you know, a lot of people, like, this is something that we hear a lot because it's true, is that it was right. mostly boring. And yeah. and that deep boredom was, under, uh, was, was cut through with moments of sheer terror. And yeah. if you want to put the sense of tedium... If, if tedium is a tool that you're deploying to tell your story, then chronology mm. is a great structure. And, um, and so then... Um, are you saying that you find the book a little boring? Is that... Is that no, but that I don't find it's it... It's a bit tedious? No, I don't find it boring or tedious, but eventually I was like, oh, like, we're just going to see what happens. It's just, it's just a series, it's a series of linear doors. It's, it's kind of a series of thought experiments, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's like, and I don't fully remember. I do sort of recall. I have a recollection that in the future there's going to be another character, sort of like the young gay man mm -hmm. who who shows up and greets Mandela when he returns, who's dressed sort of like in Jeffersonian clothing. <laughs> like that's that's a recollection that I have. I could be wrong about that, but you know. If you think about Jefferson was around, what, 200 years ago, roughly 250, um, you know, clothing will probably change about that much. Yeah. So, so the, and the, I think the other thing I'm, I'm not sure if I remember this or not, but one direction he could go would be increasing reliance on artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how obviously the idea of ai existed in 1970s because you have do androids dream of electric sheep mm -hmm. and you have um you know you have uh, uh, all of isaac asimov's robot stories and the idea of a positronic brain um so there's this idea of artificial intelligence and i think even isn't aren't the death panels a sort of ai yeah. in switzerland yeah, all, you know that all, yeah. that yeah, and and the the job the jobs are all done by assigned by AI. So that's so that it could be the sort of thing where he comes. I don't maybe I'm remembering this, maybe not. But it would be interesting if he came back and we're suddenly in a leisure age where like the AI are doing all the yeah. work and everyone just like lounges around like Romans, you know, like eating grapes. Um, being fed but grapes. not even eating or grapes. being fed grapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grapes. Being <laughs> right, and so Rome, so everybody. I do see. I think that's like that's what we're here for with this book is we're going to things are going to get increasingly weird and we're here for 
Mandela and Potter's, you know, Mary Gay Potter's um, reaction to that. And and so far, I feel like their reaction works yeah. for me. You know, there is a moment where you're sort of like when they're re-enlisting, you know, you're like, no, bad idea, don't do it. But I totally understand mm-hmm. why they're doing it. And then there's a moment where you're sort of like, I think it's even the last line of the section where he says, you know, as I, w- as I was heading off, you know, to the deployment, I had a sense that I was going home. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, yeah, me too. We're going to go back to some more like training stuff in Cortez. That, like after all this like weird future, you know, strange dystopian earth shit, I'm ready for some more space, you know, some more space Marines, yeah. you know, like, like, yeah, let's go home. Let's get back into it. Let's get back into the war. Let's see what the Torrens came up with. And, you know, it's it's terrible. It's going to be terrible. More bad things are going to happen for sure. Um, and, you know, we can tell from the chapter structure. We know the chapters are something like Private Mandela, Sergeant Mandela, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Mandela. Mandela, Colonel Mandela. So we can deduce from that that unless he has a kid... Um, you know, or or he marries uh, Mary Beth and she takes his name, that we're going to be with our Mandela throughout the entire book. He's not going to die in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be him reacting to bad stuff, and it's going to be him increasingly in future shock. But where where that's going to take us... Who knows? Yeah. I, my, I don't know. I don't know. My, the, the final thing I'll say before we head to trivia is yes to all that, and I do find it really interesting. It's a great read. I feel a little bit like I'm uh, in a video game. It's a like a mm. side-scrolling video game, um, uh, or yep. a like amusement park ride. You know, mm-hmm. like I mm-hmm. the, this book fairly shouts at me. There is one direction we're headed, which is fine. I do think that this is a piece of critique, and um, and whether it's of war or of the societies around war or the cultures or nationalism, jingoism, all that stuff, whatever's being critiqued, it, it has a real point. And sometimes when you are doing rhetoric, um, that's necessary. And so I'm, I think my, my, it, it's a total nitpick because I am really enjoying this read. And I think this is probably the best, to me, this is the best of the three books of this particular clutch. And, um, but I'm just feeling a little like, oh, this is headed in, in one direction. There's not a ton of like wondering that the novel itself is going to do. Well, you know, I think I agree. I think it's the best realized of the three books in this clutch. I would say part of that is it is, I would say it's the least ambitious. Uh, it has one idea and it's going to do it. Right. And this is the same thing I said about Lethem's The Arrest, which is it, its ambition is it's a, it's a small book. Yep. And as such, it succeeds admirably yep. at the smallness of its ambition in exploring, exploring the one idea. Um, this is similar. I mean, this was probably written within a year or two of th- there's a world. It's a ring. Right. Like, <laughs> there's a war. It lasts forever. You know, <laughs> it's like it's that same uh, it's that same 1970s sci-fi. I will, I will say that I'm enjoying it a lot. And I also like, you know, we, they refer to the 1930s and 40s and maybe into the 50s as the golden age. And then they refer to the like late 60s and the early 80s as the silver age of sci-fi. I got to say, this is probably my, I, you know, after having read a few books from this era, 
you know, and I'm also thinking about like, you know, I, I actually picked up Ringworld again recently and read the first chapter and I was like, oh, this is good. And, uh, you know, Left Hand of Darkness mm-hmm. and, and The Dispossessed, like, I think the 70s were really special yeah. when it came to this. And you had a lot of really profound thinkers with a lot of literary juice writing some great mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and this sits very comfortably uh, in there. Um, do you mind if I do a quick reading before we, we switch? To, to, I mean, we could. We don't really need it. I did the other one. I just wanted to read... Um, a little bit of the Torrens yeah. uh, attempt to escape. Oh, yeah. um, totally. So, so, so the the uh, soldiers are assaulting the Torrens base. We don't really know what's happening. And at a certain point, hundreds of them come out. They're in their bubbles, and they start just kind of running at the soldiers. And we figure out that it's an attempt to get to another series of structures that we later determine is kind of a launch facility for some escape pods or ships or something like that. Um, so Mandela's narrating, it was a horrifying sight that herd of monsters bearing down on us. They were running in great leaps, the bubbles avoiding them. And they all looked like the one we saw earlier, riding the broomstick naked, except for an almost transparent sphere around their whole bodies that moved along with them. The right flank started firing, picking off individuals in the rear of the pack. Suddenly a laser flared through the torrents from the other side, somebody missing his mark. There was a horrible scream, and I looked down the line to see someone, I think it was Perry, writhing on the ground, right hand over the smoldering stump of his arm, seared off just below the elbow. Blood sprayed through his fingers, and the suit, its camouflage circuit scrambled, flickered black, white, jungle, desert, green, navy. I don't know how long I stared, long enough for the medic to run over and start giving aid, but when I looked up, the torrents were almost on top of me. My first shot was wild and high, but it grazed the top of the leading torrent's protective bubble. The bubble disappeared and the monster stumbled and fell to the ground, jerking spasmodically. Foam gushed out of its mouth hole, first white, then streaked red. With one last jerk, he became rigid and twisted backwards, almost to the shape of a horseshoe. His long scream, a high-pitched whistle, stopped just as his comrades trampled over him. I hated myself for smiling. It's really good. He does, he does action narration just so well. Um, and I think, you know, when you were talking about this book's place among the other two that we've read, the ambition is smaller and the authority is higher. This is a guy who knows war. Yeah. Um, and, and you can feel it in moments like this, you know, the, 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 the staring at his friend who gets shot. And I believe the only, uh, human who gets injured in this moment Maybe the bubbles get a few of them, mm-hmm. but most. But this is a friendly fire incident too, and so seeing his friend take a laser shot from one of his comrades and just staring at him until the medic comes over, you know, it just it feels like, it, yeah, you feel the authority. Yeah, you feel like he has experienced something like this before. And the, the that's the magic of the writing here for me because it's so. I imagine it would be easy to get carried away with your descriptions, knowing what Joe Haldeman knows and what he's seen. And he does yeah. not succumb to that temptation. Um, he doesn't succumb to that temptation, but he also doesn't give us any relief, no. <laughs> you know, from the horror. Yeah. He, he tells you exactly what it's going to be like yeah. in that moment, too. I mean, it's sort of like Game of Thrones does that, Saving Private Ryan, Hemingway. Um, in it's It's all in that tradition yeah. of just uh reporter like 
not anti-war. I'm going to tell you what it's like. You can form your own conclusion about it. Trivia? Trivia. Are you the host or am I the host? I lost track. I think I'm, um, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. I'm going to get in there. All right. Um, all right. But uh, so Joe Haldeman has also written for film and television. Uh, one of his assignments mm. from grad school, uh, he went to the Iowa, Iowa Writers Workshop, um, got picked up later in his life for an episode of The Twilight Zone. Beyond beyond television, Haldeman wrote one Hollywood produced sci-fi quote film unquote mm. uh, that was released um, eighty nine ninety results matter on that uh, results differ on that date um, that film about which Haldeman said quote to me, it's as if I had a child who started out well and then sustained brain damage, unquote, was Ooh. A, Dark Angel, starring Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> B, The Rift, starring Jack Scalia, or C, <laughs> Robot Jocks, starring Gary Graham. All three of those movies are real movies. None of these are made up. So your job is to pick the one out of those three that Haldeman did write. I, th- I think um, I, I think I saw something about robot jocks in a bio I read. Uh, spelled J O X. That was going to be recall. my bonus question. Was yeah. yes, you are correct, but. How is I, I would not have gotten it if spelled. I hadn't been reading. I, I'd never heard of that film before. Although I will say that of those three, Robot Jocks sounds the most Haldeman-like. Yeah. Although The Rift would have been my second guess. Yeah. Um, uh, I would not have guessed Dark Angel. Did you watch any of it? It sounds like you didn't, but um, we will put this in the show notes. Please, oh really? Please, you go watch, watch some the robot trailer. Jock? <laughs> like, yeah. like I watched it silently at first because it just sort of started playing, and I was like, "Okay, yeah, dude in a spaceship, like hitting lighted up things on a wall, like that's what you did in the seventies. Next shot, everybody doing yoga. <laughs> this, <is> like, <laughs> this entire room of people in like Star Wars esque." X-wing pilot jumpsuits doing backbends, <laughs> and I was like, that "Sounds kind of great." I need actually. to see this movie. <laughs> yeah, and it was just just the incongruity of the two. I was like, "How does one of those scenes lead to the next?" <laughs> I could, you know, I mean, you got to stay in shape yeah. in space. Yeah, I mean, the dudes in the in dudes space. and ladies in Pacific Rim were ripped. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I mean, you know, also think about. Um, 2001, you know, the jogging around uh, the space capsule mm-hmm. with that incredible trick photography oh that a lot made that possible, you know, in whatever year that was, what, 1969, I think it's, yeah, I think like. it's 69, um, but uh, yeah. uh, brilliant work. Um, but yes, we should, uh, we should. I got kind of lucky well, there. Well, I, I got kind of lucky. Like you, you pick, you pick details off of like your, your second or third research page here. You're gonna, that's going to happen. All right, so um, as you alluded, the Forever War is probably a reference to Vietnam, Um, although we often now refer to the Afghanistan War as the Forever War since it is the longest official conflict that the U.S. was engaged in. But one of the things about wars, and particularly sort of colonialistic uh, wars or imperialistic wars, is that they don't necessarily start when they say they start, and they don't necessarily end when we say they end. 
So the I believe the Vietnam War officially began in 1965. America's involvement officially began in 1965 after the Gulf of Tonkin uh, the prior year. But it turns out that America actually had military personnel operating in Vietnam earlier. So which, when, or in what year did the U.S. military personnel first enter Vietnam as part of the conflict for which polity or political party would control the country? I'm going to give you three choices. A, 1945, B, 1950, or C, 1961. I'm trying to think about when the French colonial period of Vietnam concluded and if this is part of that, but I mean, I, you know, we know, we know the Vietnam war is essentially a, is another proxy conflict, um, between the forces of the East and the West. Generally, that's one of the, the readings of the, the conflict. I'm steered away from 1961 because I feel like that's either a really good answer and a really sensible one, but might not rise to the level of like good trivia. I think 1945 is too early unless this is something about like French Indochina um, colonialism. So I'm going to go with 1950. It's a solid guess, but it was 1945. Uh, it's so worded in a little. I was a little bit legalistic in how I worded okay. it, though, because well, the conflict at that time was between the Viet Minh, led by Ho Chi Minh, and J Japan. Um, it was part it, of the end of World War II getting wrapped up. Ugh. It, it was, and so the United States Roosevelt sent members of the OSS to fight on Ho Chi Minh's side. Um, which, you know, later we opposed the Viet Minh. Um, I think, I think I have that right. You know what? I may be wrong about that, but, um, I, th I think that's right because Ho Chi Minh, Ho Chi Minh was quoting, you know, like the Decla Declaration of Independence, but later allied with, uh, China and with, uh, the Soviet Union. But, um, the OSS, I looked this up, they were the forerunner to the CIA, but they had military rank. Mm -hmm. Um, and they all had they all had dual appointments in one of the branches of the armed services and the OSS too. So they were military personnel. I don't know if they fought, but they definitely advised the Viet Minh uh, in the conflict against so Japan. And of course, that was very late in the war. To like the CIA advisors that were all over um, the later Vietnamese conflict. Right, and in 1950, that was the French colonial period. And Truman sent military advisors to advise the French. But it was the second and time. Then in Good God. And then in 1961, Kennedy sent 400 special forces, like Green Berets, mm. to train and equip the, uh, the South Vietnamese, whatever the South Vietnamese Army were. Um, so all three of those years saw the U.S. military sending military personnel, but 1945 was the first. Well, I can't contribute a correct answer, but uh, I believe the OSS was the Office of uh, Special Services or Specified Services or something like that. Um, but the only I reason know. I know that is because, of course, in, in Infinite Jest, 
the intelligence service is the office of unspecified services. Ah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Oh, of course it is. It is the, op- <laughs> the It was the office of strategic services. Ah. So it was essentially, it was a combined, because now each military branch has their own intelligence unit. What it was essentially was the Pentagon. I don't even know if we had the Pentagon in 1945, but the Department of Defense, which may have been referred to as the War Department in 1945, which I, I think is better. It's a lot more honest, uh-huh. right? Yes. Uh, um, uh, it w- so it was essentially the, the intelligence unit of the Department of Defense or Department of War, and it worked closely with the Joint they reported directly to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who are the you know the leaders of the the uh, each branch of the U.S. military. Well, fascinating stuff. It was a bit tricky, uh, you know. The, but when I when I saw when I, I looked it up out of curiosity today, and when I saw it was 1945, I was like, oh, that's too good. That's fascinating. It is and fascinating. It, it, you know, it fits in nicely to the idea of a forever war, too. Oh yeah, yeah. We probably I don't know I don't know we I hopefully we don't have any active military deployed to Vietnam right now. I would hope not, but uh, you never know. Our, our, our military is pretty much everywhere. Yep. Um, well, next up, listeners, we will be considering the second half of Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. Looking forward to it. Uh, Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes are the non-commissioned officers. Music is by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. The design and website is by Chris Bagg. You can learn more about us at UppermiddleBrow.com. And remember, you can still win a storied Bluetooth speaker simply by demonstrating to us that you forced or encouraged somebody to listen to the show. And as a reminder, everybody, uh, Jesse and I are both writers and editors. Uh, We edit each other's stuff also, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing projects. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com. Check it out. Get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your project, big or small, Jesse, since we were non-commissioned officers this week, does that mean next week we both get to be lieutenants? We'll see. <laughs> I don't know if they call them lieutenants in the UN in the UNF well, or whatever they it's should called, get but... on board. Because <laughs> left lieutenant bag, can I see you for a moment? <laughs> um, yes. Well, uh, but um, it'll be ten days, or in uh, Mandela's subjective time, roughly three hundred years until our next episode. Sounds great. Can feel like it can feel like that, can it, you know everybody? What? Between episodes, we um, you figured out how long our like time to profitability is. We just need to go on a long space trip. <laughs> That's a good point. The problem is, is that that time is contingent on us releasing uh, episodes every every so often. The computer too, which would will be awfully hard out. to do. <laughs> yes, it's just trust in the Lord, as as Cortez says at one point. <laughs> <laughs>